Good morning, glad to see you all. If you're new, really, really thankful that you decided to come hang out with us. Uh, it's very uh, brave of you, and I'm really, really I'm grateful for it. And so I want you to know, if, if you're new here, that uh, I do have an agenda. There's actually two today, and just want to kind of clear that up before we get started. The first is this. God says in his word that it's not good for man to be alone. That's all mankind, and we disagree with God's word there, and Really would love for you to consider just uh, finding some community here. Even if you're, like, hey, people are raising their hands and singing, and you're not sure what all that's about, that's okay. You're still welcome here. Even if you're not sure about this Jesus thing, that's completely okay. Still want you to be able to have some community here. But that does lead to kind of the second agenda, which is um, I do want to take, uh, we, what we do is we teach in what's called a series. That means it just takes more than one week to work through it. And so not everything will resolve today. Um, uh, in fact, it'll take eight weeks to kind of sort through this. But I, I'm going to take the next eight weeks to try to convince you that there is a better way to live. So that's if you're a Christian, uh, believe in this stuff, there's probably some fine-tuning that can happen here. And if you're not, I want to make some arguments, uh, maybe even some persuasive uh, speech type stuff to try to convince you that maybe, maybe, maybe this Jesus thing is uh, worth considering. And uh, so today we will at least resolve uh, what makes uh, Jesus, this Christianity, um, completely different and unique from every other worldview out there. So definitely, um, I'm going to try to help uh, kind of work that through today. Again, not trying to manipulate you. And you're welcome to come, welcome to hang out. And here's what we'd love for you to consider next. If, if you are new here, uh, a couple things that we'd love for you to consider. One, you were handed a little bulletin or program. And I'd love for you to get, uh, let, let us know you're here. I'd love to follow up with you. Someone on our team would love to chat with you if you don't mind. So you can give us your name, phone number if you're comfortable with that. We can text you or call you if you're good with that. Or email address, please give us that because we do sell those to different places to pay the lights. And so that's a joke. That's a joke. I wouldn't really do that. Or if you're really brave, this is what I'd love for you to consider. Coming back here on a Wednesday night. It can be a little awkward because you're showing up to a, a new place, but uh, we basically take the whole lobby and turn it into a kind of a dining room. And so there's, uh, we serve food at 5.30. You can have gluten allergies and eat fine here, or you can have, uh, be a vegetarian, got food for you. Or if you like meat, you got that as well. Um, 5.30 we eat, love, love, love for you to consider that. And then we have some Bible classes, uh, different ways to connect, stuff for your kids, for your students. So love for you to consider all that. So that's the agenda. Um, but the new series that we're starting today is called Jesus Creed, okay? And here's, here's why. Uh, there's, if you're a Christian, you're familiar maybe with creed. We like our creed. Some of you grew up in what would be called like a liturgical ter- church where you would quote different things each week. We really, really have some affinity and connection to that. And uh, a couple of those that you might be familiar with are maybe that Apostles' Creed, right? So maybe if you did the church thing, or Nicene Creed. And basically what those creeds are is they're a group of people hundreds and hundreds of if not thousands of years ago, got together and said, what is it that we believe and how do we want to build our life, right? And so a creed, if, if you're not a Christian, uh, you have those as well. And all a creed is is just um, a beliefs that guide or shape your life, right? So that's just what a creed is. And so um, really need to have the Apostles' Creed as a church and the Nicene Creed. But it might be to go, okay, is there, can we actually narrow that down a little bit more and just figure out what exactly should we build our life on? So the, the neat thing is, you don't have to be a Christian to kind of consider this and work through this. I don't know why I looked up here to the right when I said Christian. I don't have to be a Christian. It's not that I think you're the non-Christian section. So sorry about that up there, guys. I actually think it's over here. Uh, but sorry. Uh, so, but you don't have to be a Christian to kind of go, yeah, I think there's some creeds in our life, right? Uh, some of us, for example, the, the, the creed in your life right now is just, you want to make it to bedtime, right? All, that's all, that, that's it. You're not, you're not thinking deep philosophical thoughts. You're not trying to achieve really big things. You just want to survive till the end of the day, right? Or maybe you just want to survive till Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday when your TV show comes on. Grey's Anatomy, This Is Us, whatever it is. So you, just, you just want to get there, right? And if you got kiddos, you just want them not to break something because you don't want to have pay or take, waste the time to go to the emergency room. And you want them, I'm talking about their body or anything in your house, right? You just want, you want them to stay safe and then you want them to go to sleep, right? That, that's just as, that's as large as your creed is right now. No judgment, but that's just kind of where it is. You, or maybe you got a little bit older kids and you just want them to go to college or get a job, right? Maybe you got a kid in their 30s living in your basement. You're like, I just, all my job right now is I get you out of my house, whatever it is, right? That's, that's just your creed, just uh, that deal, right? Some of you got a little bit bigger dreams, and you're going, well, I'd like to retire by 65. I'm now 50, and you're, you're charting out the amount of money it takes. So most of what's kind of shaping your life right now is how you're putting money away, maybe working a little extra, because your creed is, I just want to get to retirement, right? And so um, those are 
kind of creeds that I would kind of put in what we would call the material world, right? Uh, things you can touch, taste, smell, feel, hear, right? Just what your senses can do. And so for many of us, we kind of have these two different things going on. We have the, the, the creeds, the way by which we live, just how, what we build our life on, right? And just this material world, right? How do we build the house, get the house, get the job, whatever those things are, right? But then most of us, if not all of us, have this suspicion that there's more than just this material world. And we'll, I don't know, we'll call it immaterial. We'll call it uh, spiritual supernatural, you know, mystical, whatever, whatever term you like. But it's a, a different uh, kind of place in our world that you go, I'm not sure exactly how you access it or how to describe it. For example, um, if pain and you know, like physical pain and pleasure, taste, that kind of stuff, that fits in the material world. You got things like love. They don't necessarily fit over there. You're going, I'm not sure exactly where love fits in there or sorrow or sadness. you I mean, because they're not physical things, they're not material things, but they, they exist, and you got to wrestle with things when you get, you know, uh, alone or a night when you consider the stuff. I'm going, well, where does that stuff come from? And then even greater, like, beyond just kind of the feelings and emotions, we have even a, a bigger thought of what maybe the immaterial or spiritual world looks like. And so for many of us, if not all of us, we are always trying to figure out how do we access whatever that is. For example, words like heaven would be one we do there. These are the things you hear at funerals, right? You say they're in a better place, right? Well, they're in a better place now. Well, how do you know they're in a better place? And is that place better? And do you really mean that? Or do you just kind of feel like you've got to say that? Or here's another one. Heaven, heaven gained another angel, right? So that's this world into that world. And you're going, well, how do you access that world? Or, or everything happens for a reason. We say that. We like that one. And uh, the assumption there is that there's something pulling the strings, or something in a kind of in a supernatural world and going, well, it all happens for a reason. Maybe use the word fate or serendipity or uh, the universe or whatever it is. And so we have these kind of, these two different realms. This is what I'm going, okay, how do I operate in this life? And most of this is more about getting my needs met, not dying, surviving, arriving safely at death, all this. And then when we really want to sit and think, we have this other world. We go, okay, what happens after we die? How do we get here, right? And some of that, you got some smart scientists who go, well, here's how we possibly got here. But even that, those are all how or what questions. They don't really answer the question of why we're here, which is, I think, a more important one. And so in this category over here, you got some deep thinkers that go, well, I wonder why we exist. Why do we exist? What's the meaning of life? And so all those things, when we kind of resolve them, end up um, with this creed by which we live. And here's kind of the concern I have for us is we are so busy in our current that we're really not pausing and thinking about these things. In fact, what's interesting, if you um, would study kind of the different generations of people, right? You know, the millennials. Oh, gosh, you know, you know those people. They're entitled or whatever. Um, what we're seeing for that generation and the one below is they don't really like the what and how questions as much, right? They're, not a, they're looking at the generation X and up that go, we punch the time clock, we make the money, and we retire. And they're going, well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of meaning in that. I'll save the wells. Get rid of plastic straws. And some of you like poke fun of that. But they're going, we, we can't just operate in the how and the what phase. We probably should at least consider why we exist. Like, why am I here? And so there is a desire for people in, uh, in right now to look at generations ahead and go, oh, I don't know that I just want to, I don't know that I just want money in the bank and a roof over my head. I'd, I'd like to have some more meaning. And so they're not just thinking about this material world. They're thinking about the immaterial world. They're using words like legacy and you know, revolution, and really wanting to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They're going, okay, what's bigger than me? Is it just all of us? Is there some God or creator out there? So a lot of people have lots of questions, and frankly, I think, I think a lot of us are doing a disservice to our kids, just teaching them to get a job and not really talking to them about why they exist or what they could be doing to, to, to make this world a better place, right? All those kind of things. And, but even that, you go, well, what's the purpose of making the world a better place? And a lot of us don't have time or energy to think about all that stuff, so we go, let's just go back to sleep. Let's get up tomorrow. Let's do the same thing. Let's numb ourselves with whatever TV show or whatever's in the fridge or pantry or the liquor cabinet, and let's just get to the next day, right? Just over and over and over again. And so it would make sense. At some point, we pause and go, should we actually define why we live and what our creed should be? And so that's the reason we're going to do this for the next eight weeks. Maybe there's a better way to live. Maybe we can all participate in that. And this isn't a new thing, by the way. Um, people have been figuring out this for a long time, you know, as people evolved in terms of their mind or their technologies, when they got more space in their time. There, a lot of, you know, almost like Greek philosophers, they started looking at the stars and thinking about these things. A lot of these things, actually, a guy named Heraclitus, uh, about 2,500 years ago, 
he started to think about this, and he came up with a term that he used for the Greeks, and we still use it, um, to kind of explain what a, a creed, right? And here's the term that he called it. He called it this, the logos. Now, the logos is an interesting thing, because the way that he described it, it would be that upon which you build your life, right? So it would be the logos was this thing that everybody was searching for, and it had to do with the meaning and the purpose of life. So this Greek philosopher started thinking, we should have a meaning and a purpose for life. And he started calling that the, the logos, right? You know, the problem was he had this great understanding that all of us were looking for meaning and purpose, but he couldn't quite nail it down, right? And so part of the logos had to do with kind of like, what is the purpose of living right now, right? So everything has a logos. For example, um, I was watching a pretty funny YouTube clip. We don't have time to watch it today. We've got too much to cover. But it's of a dad giving his kid a, a rotary phone. I don't know if you've seen this. And he says, here, two teenagers, you have four minutes to, to dial this number. And they're just messing with it. You know, they're like picking it up. They're touching it. They're talking to it. All sorts of weird stuff. And they can't, they can't do it, right? Because they didn't understand the logos of, uh, of the, the phone. They didn't know how it worked. They didn't know the manual. It's like uh, Tim Keller talks about it in this way. And he goes, you know, it's like people get a space heater and go, oh, that creates heat. We should cook a steak on it. No, you don't cook a steak on a space heater. That's not its purpose. It's to keep you warm, right? A grill is to cook a steak on it. And so kind of the thought is this, this guy said, there's a way by which we should live. The logos is what he called it. The way by which everything should work and how we participate in the universe and the world. And then uh, other philosophers a little bit later on, uh, you know, 23, 24, 2200 years ago, so folks you would know, Aristotle, Plato, right? Uh, not in that order, but these guys were uh, starting to think about the same thing. They would use the same word, logos. We got to figure out the meaning of life. And they started being suspicious that maybe it had to do with a creator. Maybe there's some kind of intelligent designer out there, but they couldn't figure out how you ha- get, got access to him, right? They couldn't figure out how you got access to that spiritual world, but they thought it was there. But what they did know for sure was that they couldn't be the, that, that creator's friend. Like, they weren't equals. There's no way that they could be connected to that creator, but maybe the creator's out there. And so hundreds of years of people sitting in, you know, fancy places talking deep thoughts and not coming into any really good conclusions. In fact, a couple of hundred years into that, a guy named Epicurus goes, I think there's supposed to be a logos, but we haven't found it yet. So let's stop looking and let's just eat, drink, and be merry, right? So this guy just basically said, if we can't understand the whole meaning of life, all the joy that, and all the stuff that underwrites all of our fate and history and universe, if we can't actually understand that or um, ascertain it, or if we can't do those things, then the best thing we can do is just enjoy all the things in the material world, right? Like enjoy the food and the drink and the pleasure. And so a group of people, the Epicureans, started just chasing after nothing but pleasure as a result of not really being able to find the logos. And that worked for a little while. Like it works for you, right? Um, if you struggle with addiction or someone who does, the first time they chased after that pleasure, the first drink, the first pill, right? It was glorious. But then the very thing that made them feel alive started bringing death to them and pain to them and everybody else around them right? You know this, if, uh, even if you were in your 20s and really enjoyed food and all the, all, the, all the taste and see stuff that you could do, right? You liked it, then your metabolism slowed down, right? And then all of a sudden you didn't like it anymore, and neither did your genes, right? And so there's these different things, so these Epicureans are going, taste and see, just enjoy. But the thing is, the very things they're filling their bodies with wasn't making them fully alive. It was actually leading them to death, right? And so then another group of people, uh, it's called Stoicism, the Stoics, they basically said, okay, there's a, if there's a logos, if there's a true meaning of life, if there's a guide by which we could uh, build our life on, if it's there, we can't find it. But we can see what the Epicureans are doing and others, and that's not working well. And so they came to this conclusion. They said, we think you should live a moral life as if there's a God watching kind of thing, right? And obviously, this is very summarized, generic, but we think you should live a life like there's a moral code, like you should be a good dad. You should be a good spouse. You should be a good human citizen. You should participate in your government, right? You should like civics, and you should be better, and you should leave everything you find better, as if there was somehow this logos that said that God is calling you to these things. Because what they were learning, this is interesting, that, um, that life was better when they did these things. But they couldn't think too deeply about this, because it just left them empty. They're going, they couldn't actually come up with the why they were doing it, other than they could look at the data of the results of their lives. They go, this kind of works, but we don't really think there's a God out there that's keeping tabs on this. And if there is a God out there who's keeping tabs on this, we aren't really connected to him. And so they would participate in what almost would be like a religion, right? Okay, you do these things, but for no real reason in the religion other than the, the benefits for their lives, their families, for, you know, the 
the 60, 70, 80 years they lived, but then they would die, right? And so there's this whole category of people who all kind of trying to figure out the meaning and purpose of life for hundreds of years, and they would use this term, logos, okay? And so they were going, okay, how do we either attempt to get to God, right? Or if there isn't a, a kingdom that God dwells in, how do we create the best kingdom for us to be our own God in, right? Not like in that arrogant, we want to be God and be worshiped, but okay, if no one else is in charge, we should be in charge. And so all of their logos was all about trying to figure out how to either get back to God or kind of be God of their own life, right? Now, what's interesting, at the same time this is happen, happening, there is another group of people who we would just call religious. Um, they were the Israelites, and they kind of held the market on creator God, right? They believed that they knew how to access God. They knew how to know God. They knew how to be close to God. And what they talked about was they understood God through his, what they referred to as the word, okay? So God, they understood in the beginning in Genesis, he spoke the world into existence, right? And so they understood God to be the spoken Torah, right? That was then written down. And so they understood that you obey God's rules. You obey his words. God gives commands and you do them. They actually had 613 of them. You're familiar with some, the Ten Commandments, or 603 additional ones. And they are going, no, no, that's the rules. That's what we do. That's what we follow. Now, about 2,500 years ago, uh, a God was using prophets to speak those words and uh, write those words down to his people. And then all of a sudden, there becomes this very quiet period in history for 500 years where God's not doing that. Ironically, this is about the same time that um, these different philosophers are starting trying to come up with this logos. And one of the things that was happening is these Hebrew folks, they, were, they had their words that they'd follow, the, the, the Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament. But then they were starting to notice all the people around them, the Greeks, by the way, who were eating and drinking and being merry. And they're like, we want that too. And so what happened about 2,400 years ago is these Israelites stopped being as committed to what they would call their words, uh, God's words, the Torah, and started putting, you know, footings in both sides of their vein of going, we're going to be religious, but we're also going to be, you know, evolved, like the Greeks. And so what happened is the Greek culture now invades the Hebrew culture to the point where at the turn of the first century, 2,000 years ago, the Hebrews don't even speak Hebrew or write Hebrew anymore. They're now writing Greek, okay? So if you know anything about church history, it's actually pretty interesting there's this group of, like, very devout Orthodox Jews. They're, they're the Maccabees. They're like redneck Jews, okay? The whole story of Hanukkah is these guys, nope, we're going to hold tight to, our, to the words of God. But for the most part, yeah, this Greek culture kind of comes in and dilutes the Israelite culture. So what, what happened then, just, we'll get into the word in just a second. What happened then is these guys are saying, okay, we understand that you have your logos, this is the way by which you live, the deep thinkers, philosophers. But they're like, you know, they use the same language because they're speaking Greek. And they are now referring to God's spoken word as also the logos. So whether you were really, really religious or really, really irreligious, everybody had a common vernacular and language. And all of them were trying to figure out the meaning of life. And they all thought it was going to be found in this word, the logos. So they were all practicing religion in some sense. Because religion is this. Hear me. Religion is man's attempt to either reconcile or get back to God or become their own God in every category. You can chase down every single religion. You can go down Islam, Mormonism, whatever you want to walk down. It is man's attempt to somehow follow some kind of direction, some kind of creed to get themselves back to God. Or they go, there is no God, so let me just look within and become my own God and come up with my own rules. So religion, all of them, all of them is man's attempt to either get to God or become their own God. And so these guys following the logos, we're going, we're going to obey all the rules. But deep down, there's a problem. They knew they couldn't obey all the rules, right? They're spending all their time clearing their search history, right? I mean, they knew good and well that they couldn't do all the things that the, the logos was telling them to do. So they had a conundrum, okay? If the way you get to God is by following the logos, then we're in big trouble because we can't do those things, right? And these guys over here are going, there is no logos. All of our smart guys, they haven't found it. You're not going to find it either. So eat, drink, and be merry. And if that doesn't work for you, just start behaving and get involved in politics, right? That's it. That's just kind of how the whole world works. So when we get to the, the turn of the century, 2,000 years ago, the entire world is very similar to us. They think that either if they could follow all the rules right, then God would be appeased, right? Pray a certain way, eat certain foods, do certain things, and maybe, just maybe, at the end of our life, we have more good days than bad days, and God lets us into heaven. If there's a heaven, right? Or we go, there's none of that. We can't find any of that. So we choose one of two routes. Just find pleasure, right? Or just behave because 
that might be the best thing to do. So at the turn of the century, very similar to now, everybody's going, okay, how do we have access to the creator if he's real? And how do we find a life that has meaning and purpose and beyond just punching the time clock and arriving safely at death? So all this is going on and without in human history, just like it is now, um, at the time that Jesus is going to show up on the planet. Now, what I want you to hear about Jesus, and I'm going to show you in the scriptures, is that Jesus may, is a uniquely different uh, religion than everything else. In fact, I would take it out of the religion category if religion is man's attempt to either get to God or become their own God. Because Christianity, what makes it so uniquely different than every other worldview is it's actually God doing all the work. If religion is man trying to do the work to either get to God or become God, Christianity is actually God through his son Jesus coming down and doing all the work. So if you can imagine religion as building this big ladder or tower trying to get to heaven, right? then Christianity is the exact opposite, where all of a sudden, heaven opens up. A fire pole comes down, and Jesus comes and invades this world and does all the work. He does all the work. He, he pays the price for all the consequences we deserve to pay. He even gives us what they call faith. He says faith is a gift. He even gives us the ability to believe in him, right? So um, the, he does all the work, and so you're going to see very uniquely that Jesus is completely different than any other logos or any other creed out there. And the way that we know this is really, really neat. When Jesus steps on this planet, nobody argues that he, was, that he wasn't real. History, both the Bible and secular history, captures that he was real. Nobody argues that he uh, claimed that he was the Son of Man and the Son of God. Nobody argues that he says he was God, right? And nobody argues that he d- died. We all kind of agree that's just what history happens, right? So we even define our time 2,000 years later as, as when Jesus showed up here, right? Before Christ, in the year of our Lord, those are the two things. So nobody argues that stuff. And nobody argues that there's no tomb for him. They don't know where he, there's no place because they can't find his body. They don't know those things. Those are all parts of kind of the story that we all know. But so when Jesus shows up, he completely transforms how we understand religion because he does all the work and, call, and offers all the forgiveness, all the grace. And the first way he does it is he invites these people to follow him, okay? So he invites these 12 guys to kind of, they're kind of ragamuffins. They weren't well known. They didn't have good pedigrees. And he just basically invites them in to start observing what he does. And so he's going to do some really miraculous things. And he's going to make lame people walk, blind people see, dead people live, and all sorts of stuff. And these guys are going to be charged with making sure the whole history hears about this guy that's revolutionary, revolutionizing uh, religion, does all the work, right? He, he's completely different than any other worldview. And one of the guys who does that is a guy named John. Now, there's going to be two Johns that show up in today. One that's going to be the writer John. This is Jesus. Another one's going to be John the Baptist. I'll walk you through it. You want to take notes. It'll be okay. But John, Jesus' buddy, Jesus' death, decides to write a biography. Now, as Christians, we don't think it was just this simple biography. We think the God of the universe, through the Holy Spirit, wrote these words through John to make sure we'd hear him. So John, Jesus' little buddy, followed him for three years, uh, sits down and writes a biography about Jesus' life. Now, he tells us in John chapter 20, the kind of thesis, the purpose for him writing all this, okay? And so in, G- in John chapter 20, Jesus, he goes, hey, Jesus did a lot of miracles. And if I were trying to write it all down, there's not a library that can contain it all. But I don't write these things so you'd have like a scrapbook of Jesus' miracles. This isn't a history book. This isn't a science book. That's not the objective of my biography. He says, I write these things so that you may believe in Jesus as Lord, as Christ. So his goal was to convince you that Jesus is God incarnate. Every religion trying to figure out where God is, and all of a sudden, God shows up on the planet and makes himself available. That's what John's saying. I want you to know that. So when John starts out his, his biography, he's very familiar with the, the thinkings of the day in terms of logos, right? And so he's think, he understands what the Greeks are thinking. He understands what the religious people are thinking. And so when he starts this book, the prologue to this book, the very beginning of it, this is what he has in mind. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let me read this to you. It is fascinating and brilliant. So even if you're not a Christian, I understand this stuff, you at least have to be fascinated how clever John is as he writes this book. So this is what he says. John chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what he says. In the beginning was the word. Now, that word, word, you gotta understand this, is the Greek word logos. So John's saying, hey, I know what you're looking for. I know you're looking for meaning and purpose in life. I know you're trying to understand why you exist. That word logos. I understand you're looking for that. Hey, Greeks, I know you are looking for purpose and meaning, and you know it's got to be more than just collecting some money and arriving safely at death. And he's going, in the beginning, there is always purpose and meaning. The logos. Hey, hey, Israelites. Hey, Jews. I know that you think that it all started with God speaking, and you understand that. In the beginning, God spoke. So he's speaking the language of both people, and he's going, in the beginning, was the Word. And then he says this, and the Word was with God, 
and the word was God. So this is brilliant and complicated. So the very first thing he says is, okay, in the beginning was the word. So he's saying, before time existed, logos existed. So in the beginning, there was a plan, there is a meaning, there is a purpose. This is what John is telling the whole world, right? They're going, oh, that's really interesting. That kind of accommodates both the Greeks and the Jews, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So they're going, no, no. Not only was that always that way, it's not like there was some, like, just weird God is in everything universe. There was, in the beginning, the Logos, and it was with God. So the Greeks are going, like Aristotle, going, I don't think you'd be a friend of God. How would you do that? And, and they're going, no, no. In the beginning, there is meaning, and it was connected to God. So you're saying, oh, okay, so not only is there a, a reason we exist beyond evolution, right? Not only is there a reason we exist, we know that now the reason somehow is connected to God. Most people are still tracking at that point. This is still the first verse, right? And then he says something outrageous. And the next thing he says, and the word, the logos, was God. Okay, this is crazy talk, because... First, you're talking about God being greater than us, brilliant, you know, creator, spoke the world into existence. Jews, Greeks, they get that. Okay, there's some creator interested in him, beginning, get, get that, before we were, he was. Yep, yep, and this, this meaning was alongside him. And then all of a sudden, they go, the logos was God. Now, this sounds a little bit more like pantheism, right? It sounds like, you I mean, God's in everything. God's in me, God's in you. In the beginning, the logos, the meaning is God. So, when you hear that, you go, well, it must not be actually about a real God. Wait, I thought he was going to connect us to the real God, but that's not what he's saying. It doesn't sound like what he's saying. He's saying that everything's God. If it makes purpose and meaning sound like it's God. You hear that? It makes the Bible God, right? It makes all those things. It makes all those things. And so, I don't know if you've ever had a dog, and you're pointing to something, right? Go eat your food. But the dog, when you're pointing to the food, the things that it needs for nourishment, it actually comes to your finger. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, go over there. And it comes here. No, 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 go over there. Come in here. So, uh, at this point, it goes, okay, the Jews would have been like, ah, oh, so the word is the God, right? No, 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 the word points to the God. No, no, the logos points to the God, but in this moment, you'd think for a second, they go, okay, is, it, okay, is purpose and meaning our new God? Now, John continues, really, really important. This is so beautiful. He's now going to personify this logos, and he says, he, he was with God in the beginning. Wait, wait, so logos is not some, you know, ethereal purpose or meaning. He's literally going, no, no. Logos is a person. He, he's putting words on it. He's going, he was with God in the beginning. Now we know, because we read through the whole scriptures, and we know the whole thesis. He is now saying that the logos, he, you'll see a little bit later, is Jesus. Jesus was with God in the beginning. So if you're looking for God, you're going to find him through Jesus, not through the Bible, not through the logos. Those are both pointing, the, the Bible, the logos, they're both pointing to the God, to Jesus, right? So we're running to the Bible, we're running to all the ethereal, cute, you know, philosophical talk, and both of those things are pointing to the Logos, pointing to God, right? And so it says this, he was with God in the beginning. Now he's going to give us some understanding of who this God was. So he's talking about Jesus, and he says, this is what you need to know about Jesus. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, okay? So, I mean, this is, this is complicated, so he's now saying, okay, let me help you understand this. This guy always was. He is God. He is the purpose. He is the meaning. We're going to find it later. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's all those things. And here's what you need to know about him. He created all things. Now, at first you go, well, that's kind of strange. But if you think long enough, this makes sense. Because I tried to explain this last night at the Saturday night service. So glad we have that one for me to fumble through. And so I was talking through... Um, that we've never made anything. And I had this great idea that I'd use babies as a, an illustration. And then I got really complicated. I'm like, I didn't know. I'd, I shouldn't use those words from the stage. And so let me give you a different illustration today. Um, peanut butter cookies. You go, I'll make some peanut butter cookies. But you don't make peanut butter cookies. You bake peanut butter cookies, but you don't actually make them, right? Uh, you, you didn't make the peanuts. And maybe you took the peanuts because you're holistic and you crunched them all up and made some kind of butter and forgot to put sugar in it so it tastes terrible and you got to stir it all the time. But anyway, you, you, you make the peanuts, right? Maybe you make the peanut butter, right? So you take the peanut butter and then you take the sugar and then you take the wheat or the grain, whatever it is, and you kind of put them in a bowl and you mix it up, right? And then you get the little clumps out. You lick the spoon. You stick it in the oven and out comes cookies. You go, I made cookies. But you didn't actually make the cookies. You just rearranged all the ingredients that were already made to create something else. Nothing new. 
Nothing new has been made. It's just you took all the ingredients that were already made from the beginning of time, already there, and then compiled them in a new way. By the way, we Americans are really good at this, right? We have great ideas, and we sell them, and we find them, and we stand at the top of the pyramid, and we go, hey, you sell this to two people, and you sell it to three people, right? The next thing you know, we've got this big, massive Ponzi scheme of nothing that we're selling, right, except for ideas. And so um, what, what, what John is saying right here is he's going, look, everything that has ever been made, like the big ball of gas out there that all, that sustains all of life, right? Without it, there's no growth of anything. No animals can grow. No plants can grow. Nothing, right? So sun and water, those are the two massive ingredients that God provided and continued to provide. And so he's going, everything that you've ever been looking for was created through the Logos, right? In him, everything was created. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, no, he's going to say even more, was life. In him was life. So he's going, this is beyond just some understanding. If you are looking to actually live, if you're looking for purpose, if you're actually trying to figure out how to be fully alive, you are only going to do it through this guy, right? And that life was the light of all mankind. This is really important. This word light that Hebrews and the, the Gentiles and the Greeks, all of them would have known because light was how they were guided, how they saw, how things were illuminated, right? All the discovery happened with light, right? And so he's going, every bit of discovery that you need it is in Jesus. Jesus is the light. He's the how you understand yourself, how you understand all mankind. All of it has to be viewed through him, right? Now, all of it has to be viewed through him. Uh, so he continues and it says this, uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the way by which you see all this is the light. And here's the good news. There is nothing that can destroy light because darkness is just an absence of light. So Jesus being light is bringing his light into the darkness. So what John is saying is Jesus showed up and started making himself known. And here's what happens next. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. So this gets a little confusing. And so you get all this weird words, logos. They don't understand that. And all of a sudden, John kind of switches gears in verse 6. Verse 6, he just switches gears. And you think he's maybe just like, oh, squirrel. But he's, he's going to bring it back, so stay with it. And John is going to introduce us to a new character, a real human being, and his name's John the Baptist. This guy was weird. He stood out in the wilderness. He ate all sorts of bugs, had long, nappy hair. And he kind of had a, he had a pitch that he was giving. And his pitch was this, repent. That word literally means change the way you think. For both people, both thinking the Logos was in the Word or in some, you know, philosophical meaning. He says, repent, change the way you think. And this one he says, for the kingdom of God is near or at a hand. Meaning, if you could change the way you think, you might actually see something pretty incredible here. If you could change the way you think, you might actually discover the purpose and meaning of life. So that's, that was John's elevator speech, right? And so uh, John the Baptist is going to show up in the, uh, the passage. John the Beloved, the writer, is going to help us understand who he is. And this is what he says. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. So he's going, I'm not the light. I'm just pointing you to the light. I'm just another finger pointing towards the food, right? It's not me. I'm just, a, I'm not the light. I'm pointing towards the light. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So John is saying about John the Baptist, this is a guy who's helping people understand that it's not found in the words. It's not found in a deep philosophical thought. It's found in a person. Now watch this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John is going, what everybody throughout human history, past, present, future is looking for, all of a sudden it was coming into the world. It was about to be illuminated. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So he's going, this is the craziest thing. People are so busy trying to obey the rules, right? Another rule, add new rules, get a new institution, have more classes, have more things, that they're so busy in that they don't look up and go, oh, there's the light, right? These people up here are so busy smoking their cigars and drinking their gin and talking deep philosophical thoughts, right? They're imagining the meaning of life and Jesus is showing up and both sides are missing it. And to be honest with you, this is actually what concerns me the most for our church, particularly if you're a guest. Because we're kind of in this middle of launching a Saturday night service. You may be seeing yard signs out there. I love them. love seeing them. You should put them up and get really excited when we see them. I love what's going on here. I love the music. I love teaching you the Bible. Um, love the community we have. Cal, Connect on Wednesdays, all the different classes. But part of me is really concerned that we could do such a good job of keeping you busy with all these activities. Go serve the community. Go help move in at Lincoln University. Go hand out cards. We can be so busy trying to do the things of God, and we can be so busy trying to learn about God that somehow we could miss the light in the middle of it, right? My biggest fear would be that you would show up here and find a really great church, 
and somehow miss the light in all that. That you could come here, find community, find a bunch of buddies, and somehow, somehow miss the fact that there is a logos, there is a meaning and a purpose for life, and that is Jesus. Not a church, not a small group, not more understanding, not some clever logos, not new bumper stickers. None of that saves you or gives you meaning in life. It all is found in Jesus. So as a church, we want to participate in helping point to that. So John is going, there is this guy, he showed up, but people are so busy in their little, following their rules and checklists, busy in the, the, which way they prayed and what foods they ate and what days they were fasting, right? And all these different things that somehow they were missing all that. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, so he's going, to wait. But those who did look up and go, there he is. There's the logos. There's the light. Watch what he offers. This is important because this is, changes everything for everyone. Everybody's going, okay, we think we want to be connected to God. And Aristotle and Plato are going, but how can you be connected to God? He is like a divine creature and you are a peasant, Right? So he says, but for all who receive him, watch what they get. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born to God. So there's this understanding of God in the scriptures. By the way, you can't find it in the other religion as a father. In fact, every time Jesus prays, except for once, he refers to God as Abba. Because this changes everything. When you see God as father, it changes everything, right? The only person who can wake up a king in the middle of the night is a a two or three-year-old, right? They can go, Daddy, I'm hungry. Daddy, wipe my bottom, right? Any of those things. This king that nobody else has access to him except for a child, right? Just a child. Just a child has access. So Plato and Aristotle and these guys trying to figure out how do you get to this deity? They didn't understand that this deity was referring to himself as a heavenly father. So all of a sudden, John's going, you got to see how you get access to the father and it's through the son and his name is Jesus. He's the logos. He's the one that's going to bring you back into his house. He's the one that's going to invite you back in. He's the one that's going to point you towards adoption, right? So he's saying that and it says this. So how do you go, okay, okay, there we got logos. Okay, how exactly is he going to do that? Like, how are we going to see him in verse 14? Brilliant. John goes, that logos, the word, oh, you want to know how? It became flesh. Became flesh. Became flesh. The greatest supernatural event in history, well, I'd say the resurrection is the thing that changes things. The greatest supernatural event in history is that the God of the universe put on human flesh and showed up here as a baby, right? And these philosophical guys go, no, 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 no. There's no way that God's going to show up as a baby in a town of Nazareth. And they're going, no, 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 no. They can't do that because we got we to gotta behave. If they do that, then we don't have to behave, and the whole part is following the rules. Everybody's got to follow the rules, because we like our rules. You go, I don't like rules. No, you don't like other people's rules. Remember when you built your fort or your first clubhouse? The very first thing you said is no girls allowed, right? You don't, it's not that you don't like rules. You don't like other people's rules. And these guys are going, we have a good set of rules that we can enforce on people. And they're going, really, a baby? A Jewish baby is going to fix all this, right? And so neither side was seeing it. And it says the word became flesh. Told you last week that word means, uh, and made his dwelling. That dwelling is the word tabernacle. The Jews would have understood that as the place where God dwelled, right? Eugene Peterson says it this way. God moved into the neighborhood in the message. So God shows up. And they're looking everywhere. And here Jesus is. He's here in the flesh. And then we get a descriptor of what, who Jesus is. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And he gives us a couple understandings. Full of grace and truth. This is important. Because, remember, the, the Logos, they like their truth. They like their laws. They like their spoken world. Truth is not relative, right? But all those rules they said they wanted to follow, they are really terrible at following. They actually needed forgiveness, right? They needed some kind of covering. And deep down, they knew it. You know, these guys are going, truth isn't really real. It's what you think and what you feel. And, you know, you just follow your heart, and it works itself out in the end. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. That's how you get a timeshare, right, is you follow your heart. Right? And so it doesn't work out in that way. And so these guys are going, ah, oh, it's just all mamby-pamby, go with the wind. He's going, no, no, there's truth. There's grace and truth. And it all comes in the person of Jesus. Now, verse 15. John testified concerning this. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Oh, this is so complicated. Good job hanging in here. So John is going, he who's coming after me, he's coming down the road. He's the one who came before me. So they're scratching their heads going, what does that mean? And he's going to give us some understanding. He, um, out of his fullness, we have received all, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And so this is really important. So he's going, that logos, you don't think it existed but it's existed long before you thought it existed. Like the fact that right now, you're breathing in that oxygen that you didn't create from a plant that you didn't plant. And you're emptying yourself of waste, literally waste, just spitting out carbon dioxide. And God is, in his perfect grace, 
taken all that and turned it back into something that you can breathe again. Like the fact that you literally are sitting here with a pulse right here is not because you created yourself, right? You're like what my parents did. Oh, okay, well, sort of. But who created them? And then who created them? Then who created them? Right? I mean, we, we can keep going back. And so the, all of this is going, this guy has always been gracious. But here's the thing. We took advantage of his grace. We didn't appreciate his grace. And you get this. If you, if you were like a selfish teenager or an L and you're my age, and you're looking back and you're going to apologize to your parents for all the stuff you did now that you have kids that are doing the same thing, right? You're going, oh, I'm so sorry. And they're like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, right? And like you're, you're now realizing that you weren't a good steward of the grace that was given to you before, and, it, and you're getting more of it. So what, what, what John's saying here is this is a guy who just continues to dump his gifts out on people who don't deserve them. Grace upon grace upon grace. So this is a guy who just continues to give good gifts. Good gifts. And they're going, no, 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 we, we don't need that kind of guy. We need a guy who tells us to follow the rules, right? And they're going, that, does, that seems like a pushover to me. Like, really? This guy, he's just going to give us gifts all the time? Right? And so they're both still wrestling with it. For the law was given through Moses. Ah, oh, the law. But grace and truth, they came through, and this is actually the first time you see it. Took him 17 verses to put a name on it. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, the, the Jewish form of Joshua, which is the, the warrior king. Christ is the promise of the one who's going to fix things. So they're going, the warrior king who's going to fix all things. So finally in this moment, he goes, let me give you a name for the law. God says, name is Jesus. So all of a sudden they're going, okay, that guy from Nazareth, the one who, the one we heard about who made lame people walk, blind people see, they're starting to connect the dots. Um, and then he says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship to the father has made him known. So he's going, all of you have been looking for this since the beginning of time. You've been trying to find God trying to find God. You've been trying to figure out a way to get back to God or become your own God. And he's going, no one's actually ever been able to see God except for Jesus. And now Jesus is making himself and God known. Now this was John's testimony. So it's going back to John. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So all these guys are going, no, no, this guy's telling him not to follow the law. It's not just about obeying the rules. We got to figure out what he's doing. We got to stop him. So they're going to John and asking him and to ask him who he was. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I'm not the Messiah, right? This is different than most, how most religions are started. They're usually started with a guy who goes into a cave, goes up on a hillside, goes to some place, and comes back with like a better understanding of whatever the Logos was. So you got the Book of Mormon, you got the Quran. I mean, you got all these things where some guy goes, you can trust me more than you can trust anyone else. Trust me, give me your money, give me your attention, and give me your daughters, right? And that's just how all these things go. And John the Baptist goes, no, 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 look, I'm not starting a cult here. This is not my thing. I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm telling you there's an Logos, his name is Jesus, and you should pay attention, right? Um, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? Right? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. These are guys that would speak on behalf of God in the Old Testament. That would give them the Logos, the word of God, right? Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. So he's going to use something from the Torah, the Logos, the, this prophet Isaiah, and he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 40. Now, in Luke chapter 3, you see a, a more full version of this quotation, but this is where he says, make straight the way for the Lord. So he's going, there's the Logos, there's Jesus, and then there's the folks who point to him. Now, in our, in our arena here, for those of us as Christians, we're not the Logos. We're not the Christ. We can't fix people. We can't save people. We can't do any of that. You can't even fix yourself. So we're not going to participate in trying to do behavioral modification for everyone else. We are not good at that, right? And so our job is not to fix people because we can't fix people. Our job, our job, we're John the Baptist in this. And what John the Baptist is saying, you want to know what my role in this is? I make straight pass, make straight the way for the Lord. No. Isaiah chapter 40, and then quoting in Luke chapter 3, you get the full version. This is where John the Baptist says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for them. Remove every mountaintop, fill in every valley, make every crooked path straight so that all mankind can see God's salvation. So the way by which the church participates, right? If we're going, no, no, we want to make sure that we don't just get a good church family, but they see Jesus. What we do, what our job is to remove obstacles, remove whatever those obstacles are. If they can't come to church on Saturday night then or Sunday morning, let's come up with a way that they can get to a church on Saturday night. Not so our church can get bigger, but so that more people can see the Logos, so that more people can see the Word, so that more people can see Jesus, right? So children's ministry. We want to make sure these kiddos don't have to listen to me talk for 55 minutes at this speed, right? We want to make sure they understand the Word, and we want to make sure you as parents can sit still and listen right? So we're removing obstacles so that both your kids and you can see the gospel. So you can see Jesus. That's our goal. Now, let me tell you a couple things there. Uh, we have a, a, an entire department of our church focused on how do we make, uh, remove obstacles and build bridges in our community. It's kind of the building bridges piece. Pastor Ben oversees that. 
And there are many ways. One of the things we're working through right now is something called vocational Bible school, vocation Bible school. We want to teach you how to remove obstacles in your workplace to figure this out and um, trying to figure out different ways to love our community. And Pastor Ben, this week at Cal, um, after you eat 6 to 10, you'll get to hear about some ways by which you can do that and participate in that. So you should come to that class. But let me give you one tangible way right now, okay? This is kind of a commercial. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, about once a quarter, maybe a little bit more now, we, you heard it on the video announcements, we uh, participate with something called Family Promise, okay? So it's supposed to start on Sunday and go through next week, and we use our other church building, New London Presbyterian Church. This church is 292 years old. That's the other campus. And we use that building, and literally homeless people in our community stay there all week. All week, right? But there's been some other churches who can't do it anymore. So we said we're starting on Sunday, but we're actually starting this Thursday. And um, to be very frank with you, I don't know how many families there are, but I know there are nine kids there. Nine kids who are completely homeless. Like, they're going to sleep in a cot, on a cot in a Sunday school classroom, right? And that, that's us trying to help and participate. But they're not thinking about where the Logos is. Following, they're not thinking deep thoughts about where's Jesus, I want to see Jesus. You know what they're thinking? I would like to get a good night's rest. And I'd like to not be judged tomorrow for this, right? And so one of the things that we can do to help remove some obstacles is actually just participate. Some of you, we need overnight hosts, so maybe you can stay overnight. Or maybe you can't stay overnight, but you can go have dinner over there. And you can look these families in the eyes and uncover the dignity that God gives them. Every single one of them have a story, and all those stories matter to God, right? And so maybe you can just make a meal and participate in that, or have dinner with them, or help them uh, shuttle between places. And if you have any kind of uh, availability during the day or night, I'd love for you to consider that. You can stop at the info center on your way out, or go to clcfamily.church, click on signups, and see some ways by which you can serve. I'd love, love, love for you to consider that, right? So John Baptist going, it's not about me, it's about the Logos. I just need to remove obstacles so that people can see the Logos, the meaning and purpose, that to see Jesus, right? So then he continues. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, not Elijah, nor the prophet? Now to be honest with you, this is where we should have stopped last, last night and today because now we've got a whole other message to work through and I'm going to try to cover this in two minutes. Right? So um, John the Baptist was saying, okay, let's just agree that you have this life you're living and it's not the life that you really want to live. That you understand there's a better purpose, a better meaning, and you would like to tap into that. And you would actually like to be freed from all the dumb decisions that you had before, like that timeshare or whatever it is, right? You'd like to be freed from all that, and you'd like to have this mulligan or this fresh start, like this New Year's, this Yom Kippur, whatever it is. You, you'd like to have this time where you're freed from all that. So John the Baptist was declaring, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And the way that they were symbolically showing the old life going away and the new life coming is they literally were um, baptizing them. This, this was just a symbol. It wasn't saving anybody. And John was declaring those things, and people were going, I want, to, I want to engage and inherit and participate in the kingdom of God. And so John would bring them, and he would baptize them, showing the old them being washed off. It basically is a shower, right? And the new them coming to life, right? Them going, oh, now all of a sudden I have this new understanding that there is a logos, there is a God, and his name is Jesus, and I can follow him. I want to devote my life to him. So John was telling people to repent and do those things. And so these Pharisees are like, now, why are you baptizing? Because usually when people do those things, it's to get them to follow themselves, to start a new cult. And he's going, no, no, I'm not doing that. Watch what he says. I myself, um, let's see here, sorry. Um, I baptize, he says, now the Pharisees asked about the baptism. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? He says, I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of those sandals, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So he's going, there's another guy who's going to baptize, and it's different. This is just symbolic, right? Um, this is all happening at Bethany um, on the other side of the Jordan where J- John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said this about Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No, neither side could fully understand this. But what John was declaring in all this is there is a God who's going, a guy who's Jesus, who is God, who's going to come and make all things right. And they're going, we're not sure how that works. What do you mean, Lamb of God? He's going to take away the sins. They kind of understood, like, the atonement of sins. And that's still really complicated for us to go. You mean someone had to die? We all know that when we, there's always pain and sorrow and sin and consequences for it. And what we understand in the Scriptures says the wages of sin is death. Meaning there's disconnection from God. There's disconnection from your Heavenly Father. But the gift of God through Jesus is eternal life. So they're making that declaration, and neither side of that moment would be able to go, oh, now I understand, right? They didn't, they didn't get that in that moment. Um, but verse 30 says this. This is the one I meant when I said, the man who comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. He's going, remember when I said that? That's him. He's coming right here. The Lamb of God. The God of the universe, right? Uh, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. 
Then John gave his testimony, and he says this. So he's talking about the moment when he baptizes Jesus. Well, uh, your kiddos are talking about that right now. He says this. Uh, I gave his testimony. When I baptized him, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. So that's what he says. And in, um, in different passages, it says that the, the heavens opened up, and God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. In this moment, what's happening? What's happening? Throughout human history, people are going, how do we get to heaven? How do we have access to heaven? How do we tap into that immaterial world? And in this moment, it's brilliant. You see the heavens open up and God goes, I'm doing the work. I'm opening up heaven. I'm sending Jesus down to rescue you, to bring you back to me, right? Um, And I myself did not know him. That's what John the Baptist is saying. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the one who will do the sacrament that will save people, that will make all things right. Not that baptism saves anybody, but that will show the picture of how, what it looks like to be new, this new life in Christ, right? In verse 34, he says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Chosen one. There's going to be a God. He's going to be called the Son of Man. He's going to come on behalf of his Heavenly Father and he's going to come and he's going to make it possible all of us to be adopted and welcome back in the kingdom. They're going, well, how does that work? How does that work? And what's going to happen just a second? Uh, um, over the next couple of years, Jesus is going to save a lot of people. He's going to bring dead people back to life, blind people see, and do all sorts of miraculous stuff. And these guys, I mean, he's building a following. These disciples are, are, are ecstatic about following him. They're so excited about the, the, the reality that they found God. They have access to God. And then there's this moment in the Last Supper where Jesus is about to die, a gruesome death. And um, he, he has a meal with, with his disciples, and Gary's going to tell you a little bit about that meal in terms of communion in just a second. And so he has this meal with his disciples, and he says a couple of things. He breaks some bread and goes, this is my body broken for you, going, hey, I'm going to pay the price for you. I'm going to pay the price for you. They're going, oh, how does that work? How does that work? And then, then he's going to take some wine. This is juice here, but he's going to take some wine, and he's going to pour it out, and he's going to go, this is my blood that was shed for you. So he's going, the way by which all this happens is all me, all me. I'm doing all the work. I am the Logos. I am God incarnate. I am him, and I want to do all the work, and I want to pay all the price. And they're going, oh, wait, what, how exactly is this going to work? And, and then he tells them that, and then, then he says, hey, guys, I'm going to leave you. And they're oh, you're going to die. You're going to die. What are you going to do? And they start freaking out. You see John chapter 14. It's called the Last Supper Discourse. And Jesus looks at his disciples very lovingly in this meal, and he goes, hey, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. They're going, you're going to leave us. You just said you're going to be murdered. And you said you're doing it for us. What do you mean? Like, how can we not be troubled, Jesus? Don't let your hearts be troubled. But he says this, believe in God. Believe also in me as the Logos, as God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Then he, then he goes, this is so good. He goes, hey, guys, in my father's house, there are many rooms. There are many rooms. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you, right? Because you're going to get adopted into this thing. That where I am, you may be awesome. Then he looks at me and goes, guys, 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 if this weren't true, I would not be telling you this stuff. Like, look at me. Believe in me. Believe also in my Father, right? And he goes, and here's the good news. Just gave him the object lesson, right? He says, you know how to get there. And Thomas goes, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't know how to get there, Jesus. We don't know how to get there. And he goes, oh, Thomas, yeah, you do. And he says this well-known verse that it sounds so arrogant and dogmatic, but it's just the opposite of it. He goes, hey, guys, I am the Logos, right? I am the way. If you've been trying to figure out on either side how to get there, I'm the way. I'm also the truth. Truth is not some kind of idea. It's not some kind of feeling. Truth is a person and his name is Jesus. I am the way. I am the truth. And he says, I'm the life. Everything you've been looking for in the Logos, it's here before you. I am the way, the truth, and life. And then he makes a statement. And no one gets to the Father but through me. Meaning you can chase after everything else. He's not being exclusive. He's being specific. He's telling you exactly how to get there. And he goes, it all is in me. In other words, he's going, I am the author of life. I'm the one who's writing your story, and I'm the one who's drawing you to me. And what's interesting, if that's true, if that's true, then it's, it changes everything for us, right? When if you're in a literary class and you're arguing about poetry, and you're like, I don't know if that's what that meant. I'm not real sure what that's meant. Like, you're allowed to do that, and you're supposed to do that. Unless the author shows up and tells you what the poem meant, right? And then you don't get to argue with the author and go, no, you're not right, right? If the author shows up and tells you how to read the story and what it's supposed to mean, you should listen to the author. So if all this is true, if Jesus is going, I am the author, then the way we look at him and the way we listen to him, the way we respond in the Jesus Creed about our life, our sex, our marriage, our money, our, our jobs, all that changes if the author's going, here's how it all works. And so the big hang-up, I think, in all this for most people, almost always, is coming to the gr- terms of really... Jesus had to die, like he, some blood, 
some blood fixed it all. That just still seems strange. Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And I'm going to continue to tell you this illustration until God gives me a better one. I don't know if he will, right? Uh, so my daughter's five and a half now, Sophie. She's glorious. Love her. And she's adopted. So when we were planning a church in northwest Georgia, we met a teenage girl who was pregnant, didn't want to abort the baby. We walked through the pregnancy with her, and we got to bring Sophie home. Julie was in the delivery room. We brought Sophie home three days later, and then we lived in that six-week period of right of rescission, all that kind of stuff, right? All sorts of nervousness, and we were doing the paperwork, the background checks, the thumb, you know, the, the thumb printing, all that kind of stuff. And then, finally, we got a court date. We found out that the court was going to be full that day, so the judge told our attorney that, um, that we could just sneak into his chambers beforehand. He said, it won't take long, right? So we come in his chambers, me, the Julie, Briggs, Amelia, and Sophie in the carrier, and we're there. He didn't even look at the baby. He didn't even look at the baby. He, uh, our attorney handed him the folder, manila envelope kind of thing, and he thumped through it and says, looks good, pulls out a blue pen and signed it and says, there you go, congratulations. It took two minutes. And this girl, who had no name, she was born baby girl last name, right? No name. She became our daughter. She got our last name, and she's permanently our responsibility. Like, birth parents come back, they have no rights, right? All of that changed with just some blue ink. And all of us as Westerners go, yeah, that just makes sense. Yeah, some blue ink signed by an infallible judge. Yep, 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 yep. You can adopt them, right? But the idea that God signs his name over our heart with his own red blood and adopts us, we go, no, no, that just doesn't make sense. Blue ink makes sense to us, but the creator God giving us his life doesn't. So this is what I love about the communion is Jesus is going, this is me signing my name over your heart because there are many rooms in my Father's house. And where I am, I want you to be also. And how do I get there, Jesus? I'm the way. Hit yourself to Jesus. Invite Jesus to lead you. Invite Jesus. Right after that in John chapter 14, he goes, hey, and here's the deal. I'm going to go, but I'm going to give you another. You just invite me into your life, and my spirit will come and invade every part of you. That where I am, uh, there you, where you are, I will be also. And so Gary's going to come and lead us through communion, and we're going to sing a song together with this confidence of going, this blood, this body, this was broken and shed for me, for me, so that I can be with God. And so Gary, would you lead us in this time? to invite the um, servers and the communion servers and the ushers to come forward at this time. Today, as um, we come to the table, there's a um, gluten-free offering for you. If That would be helpful over on the left side. Um, you just are invited to come by the ushers and then simply come down, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then eat it, and then return to your seat. So the Word became flesh and, as Peterson said, moved into our neighborhood. Um, actually took up resident with us, and in that made a way for us also to be able to come to know who God was. And so today, actually, as we're here and we're taking communion, it's actually a tangible act of worship. I mean, we're actually gathering here, and, and by simply coming to the table, we're acknowledging a couple of things. One thing is that we're acknowledging that, um, that Jesus is our Lord, that we believe that He's our Lord, and we're also acknowledging that He's our Savior, and that in that, we understand who He is. But we're also acknowledging that He died for us and that He rose again. And in rising again, what He did was He made it possible that His presence could be with us wherever we are, whatever we're doing. And so today, we actually believe that He is present here in this table also, that as we come forward, He's here with us. In fact, he said it this way um, in the, his discourse talking about um, communion in John 13. He said, I've been looking forward to eating this meal with you, he said to his disciples. And part of it was because he wanted the impact on them that he was there with them doing that, but that he also would be with them as they continued to meet later without him. So today, when you come to this table, Christ is present here to meet you in the midst of it. So he reminded them, he said, he took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks to God for it. He broke it. And he said to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. He passed it to them. He said, take and eat of this and do this in remembrance of me. And then he also took a cup and he gave thanks for it as well. And he said, this is the new covenant, which is poured out of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink of this and do this also in remembrance of me. Paul would later write and he'd say, you know, as long as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. These are God's gifts for the people of God. So today you're invited to come to the table and to realize that Christ meets you here. Let's pray together. 
God, we are grateful for your love, for your goodness, for your presence here, for the fact that you love us and that you're with us and that you desire even more than we do to connect with us. And so, God, we pray that you would meet us and guide us and fill us with your spirit, and we give you thanks for the sacrifice that you made, Jesus, that you came in the flesh and gave of yourself so that we could have written across the pages of our lives forgiven grace, love, wholeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're invited to come. Jesus, your glory all around us, and we're undone, you open up the heavens and fall afresh on us, and it's the power of your presence that changes us, your
oh man, if this is true, if there really is a person who is the way, the truth, and the life, then it changes everything and just would invite you to join us the next seven weeks as we kind of sort through this together. Good job today. You kind of hung in for two sermons and communion, so come back next week for one sermon. It'll be a lot of fun. That's it. You guys have a great rest of the week, and hopefully we'll see you on Wednesday.